really quick up top. I just wanted to uh, plug a little date. I'm playing at Hollow Earth Radio Saturday, May 12th, 8 p.m. with Lucy and Lucille, Jafer, and Abby Blackwell. Would love to see you out there. This episode of the Podular Modcast is brought to you by Recovery Effects and Devices. Quality handmade effects and modules paying homage to classic, synth, and effects designs while innovating for today's studios and musicians. Hello, my name is Tim Held. And I'm Ian Price. Welcome to the Podular Modcast, where we... Attenuate at the altar of modular synthesis. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Welcome to the Podular Modcast. We are so happy that we're able to continue, and your support has helped us. If you go to patreon.com slash podularmodcast, you pledge $2 or more, you get a copy of all of Tim Held's albums and EPs. If you pledge $3 or more, well, you're part of the official Cool Kid Club. We'll read your name on air, and uh, we want to give you a personal thanks. So let's do that right now. This week we have two new inductions into the Cool Kid Club. First up, we have Jeffrey Atkinson. Thank we, you, Jeffrey. We officially dub you a Podular Modcast Cool Kid. Robert Campbell, you're a cool kid. Thanks for helping out the Podular Modcast. We're really happy that you guys are helping out. It means a lot to us. And if you guys have any ideas for uh, donor tiers that you think would be cool for us to offer, um, we are open to your suggestions. We're also open to your music uh, submissions. Hit us up at info at podularmodcast.com. Now, we have a couple quick corrections to make. We played some music from Ann Annie on the podcast earlier and uh, referred to Ann Annie as a she. It was the incorrect pronoun. Ann Annie is actually a he, and his music is worth checking out. We suggest you find it online and enjoy it. Yeah, so sorry about that. Um, but in my defense, all of Ann Annie's album art and videos, none of it has any pictures of an artist or anything. <laughs> I don't need to say any of that. You have to accept imperfection. I know. In order to move forth in the I world do. and become your true self. <sighs> Thank you, Ian. You're right. And speaking of imperfection, I uh, I stole something from Duncan Trussell. I say, dear listener, and then I listened to Duncan Trussell Family Hour because I have been listening to it for six years and noticed that he says, dear listener. Well, Duncan Trussell, thanks for helping out the Podular Modcast. Yeah. This track that you hear right now was submitted to us by an artist called Bachelard. That's B-A-C-H-E-L-A-R-D. The album is called Heartworms and Expos, and the track is simply titled One. Thank you very much for your submission. Now, we talked to Cass and Crooker this week. He has an amazing studio. He has many projects that he's worked on in the past, and currently... His big projects are the Symbion Project and Elixir. Now, if you are someone who has three Scrabble tiles at most that you play per turn, like me, you may need a little help here. So Symbion Project is S-Y-M-B-I-O-N Project. And Elixir is, all capitals, E-L-Y-X-R. 
We really thank him for letting us into his studio, and his Eurorack setup is all effects modules used to manipulate the sound of a Japanese koto. Follow us on Instagram, you'll see some videos of his studio, you'll hear sounds, you'll see a performance. However, we don't have a patch challenge to show you. So, boys and girls and those beyond the binary, welcome to the Podular Podcast. Wait, didn't we steal that from another podcast here? All right. Well, welcome, Kasson. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, to uh, our, well... Go ahead, Ian. Well, Kasim, <laughs> also known as the Symbion Project. Correct. A few and other monikers, but that's walk sort us of through a, the other monikers. That's a predominant moniker yeah. of all monikers. So is, is the Symbion Project kind of like a, an un, umbrella moniker that you put other stuff under? or Honestly, I can't figure out what to do. <laughs> I, I guess if it were me, I would put everything under Symbion Project. It would just be easier to do that. Mm-hmm. But every now and then I work on a project, either just a one-off album or a weird sort of side thing. And stylistically, it doesn't fit. Right. And then I'm like, well, it really sort of deserves its own moniker, which then needs its own like logo and you yeah. know all the sort of other stuff. And so I sort of waffle back and forth. Yeah, I know on, how that goes on that. But so Simeon Project is basically the outlet for my more down tempo, slow, cinematic, mm-hmm. melancholy side of things. There's usually singing. Um, some instrumental stuff. Uh-huh. And then Rococo is sort of a weird one-off Baroque chiptunes project that now I don't think is going to go anywhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I just put that on the Bank, Simeon Bandcamp page because I didn't really want to have a you know page for one album right. or something. And then Elixir has gotten enough momentum that I've got its own Bandcamp. And, but okay. I, I sort of push a few songs onto the Simeon Project page just okay. to get so, in people's and, faces. And right out of the gate, Symbion Project .bandcamp.com oh, yeah. is the easiest place to find That's the easiest music. place. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I had a question. The, the Elixir stuff seems like it's uh, it's a collaborative thing with a different vocalist on each track. Is, is yeah, that yeah. gathering from I that? mean, for for 15 years, I made um, synth pop with this band Freeze Pop in Boston. Mm-hmm. They're still sort of doing their thing, and I'm good friends with them and play shows with them occasionally. And then I took a break from synth pop for, for a, quite a while, and I sort of got rebit by the bug again. Uh-huh. I think every 10 years, I, I'm like, oh, I like making cheesy, upbeat dance music. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I started um, Elixir as a way to just do some collaborations with singer-songwriters that I've met over the last 10 years. Okay. Um, and really wanted to have it be a collaborative project where every song, I try to find a different singer to work with, and that infuses sort of a you know a different sound yeah. to it. And then hopefully my production is the, sort of the stylistic thread yeah, across I, I the whole thing. To, I listened to a couple of those tracks, um, the, the 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 singles that you least released. Uh, I think Jenny Potts was one of the ones I listened to, um, and then a couple other with some male vocalists. And yeah, yeah, right. I, yeah. I think I think you got it. It it did sound cool. like the same yeah. album. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the newest one is with Kurt from Information Society. Yeah, which that's is the one I listened to. Yeah. Like one of my inspirational bands back in the eighties. Uh-huh. In fact, I remember seeing them when I was like sixteen years old. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just was blown away. In fact, they were really the only American synth pop band that I really listened to. I mean, I listened uh-huh. to a, a Red Flag. They were uh-huh. another, I think they are from San Diego. Okay. But, you know, everybody else was from England, essentially, or uh-huh. Germany. Um, and so I was just, I really liked their music. And and uh, so it's just amazing that I got a chance to work with Kurt after all these years. Yeah, that's yeah. super cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, you and just reached out to him and... I've known him, actually, for maybe the last... 10 years. Yeah. He does video game 
uh, composing also. And so we would cross paths in sort of the video game sphere and had always wanted to collaborate but just never had the right time. And I didn't think his voice was going to work for Symbion Project that well. And when I started Elixir, I was like, oh, finally, a, you know, a sort of a dance music synth pop outlet and mm -hmm. recontacted him and he was psyched. Okay, so you said you said video game composing also. So uh, do you, is that something else you do? Well, I did it for a while when I was at Harmonix that made they made frequency and amplitude and Guitar Hero and, and a lot of those games. And so I got hired by them to early on to do music for their games because they had very small music budget, so they couldn't like go out and hire these license these huge bands until probably rock band. Uh -huh. um, and so I did a lot of composing there. And then um, when I left Harmonix and started focusing on just music again, um, I started working on indie games. Um, oh, and so cool. I occasionally work on interesting indie game projects and always looking for new collaborative stuff, especially VR. I'm like super psyched with VR. That's something that I've been always uh, like thinking about a lot lately mm. is I, I do, I've done a little bit of film film composing ah, stuff yeah, but yep. yeah vr would seems like it'd be a really fun just like mis mixing in a like a in like a, a, a multi dimension you know like what would that be the three-dimensional mixing yeah, it's like spatial mixing. yeah, yeah like, we're sitting in front of like a vr setup right here and i'm actually working on like a vr mixing experience oh, where man. and i can't figure out what band it's for like mm -hmm. it was supposed to be for simeon project like a year and a half ago when we started the project but now with elixir showing up i'm sort of going back and forth, like, oh, maybe this should be an Elixir project. Yeah. But, but essentially, right, like, you get all the different tracks of audio, and you can literally move them around using the VR controllers, and that's how you mix or remix the music in real time. Uh -huh. And then as a, as a user, you walk over into this corner, and maybe the, uh, you know, the plucked strings get louder. Right. Over by well, this. in this case, you don't move, but you move the actual audio emitter that's controlling the tracks okay. by moving it farther away from you or towards you. So as you bring it right up to you, it's super loud, and as you you push it far away, it goes away. Okay. So it's basically like you're spatially mixing the song. And then, you know, if you put a, an emitter behind you, it sounds like it's coming behind you. So okay. now it's got a 360 rather than a stereo feel, which is uh -huh. pretty awesome sounding. Yeah. That'd be super cool. Yeah. Were you, sorry, did I interrupt you, Ian? No. Oh. Um, I, so the, um, the, the, the latest two uh, Symbion Project albums, the Gishiki and the Arcadian. Uh, yeah. And then, then w there was another one that's it's kind of like a trilogy thing? Or? Yeah, I got... When I started collecting vintage synthesizers, um, I got sort of bitten by the sort of classical synthesizer bug. I'm really into uh, Wendy Carlos, who did the soundtracks for Tron and A Clockwork Orange, um, and a huge fan of Vangelis from mm -hmm. his music, obviously from Blade Runner um, and other great movies. And so I sort of like wanted to do some albums where I didn't have to program drums mm -hmm. and I didn't have to think about singing. Uh -huh. And the minute you remove like singers and drums, you can really just focus on the textures of synthesizers and all the amazing happy accidents that can happen, especially with vintage ones that, you know, don't stay in tune and right. you can't store presets and <laughs> don't have MIDI and all yeah. this can Conveniences. Yeah, I listened to I listened to Gashiki a few times actually uh, once today, and yeah, I really dig that. It's got oh, a really thanks. nice, nice chill vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. So there's three albums that are essentially sort of ambient meets classical music, but done with synthesizers. Right. So they have sort of a baroque feel to them, and then Gishiki is more Japanese-inspired, because mm -hmm. I've gotten really into pentatonic scales as a way to just force myself into new compositional techniques, I uh -huh. guess. And did you use this big stringed 
Ah, uh, yeah, I have a <laughs> right. I've been learning a Japanese kodo, and in fact, I did not have it for that album. Oh, really? I okay. actually really I reached out to some kodo players, but it didn't really I didn't really connect with anybody, or they didn't live in Seattle. Uh-huh. But I really wanted that sound. So what's funny is that I actually made my own kodo patches using the Madrona Labs Kaivo, mm-hmm. and they're based here in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I love Alto and Kaivo. I think they're really interesting digital synths. Um, and they've and the Kaivo does all this physical modeling, and so it had some really interesting Koto starting points. But one of the things you know you can do. It, that you can't do with a real Kodo is I could do all sorts of crazy subtle changes on the attack so that like the harder you hit the MIDI key, the more it would move from a sharp attack to a soft attack. And uh-huh. that's actually, you can't do that with a real Kodo. I mean, you can <laughs> try to, you know, pluck it differently, but so um, it's funny that after I finished Gishiki, I got a real Kodo and now I'm <laughs> learning it and yeah. I probably should have just waited to <laughs> do the album when I learned the instrument, but hey, you can do another yeah. It's gonna well, and that's what I'm focusing on now mm-hmm. is how to in, bring the Kodo through um, Eurorack effects into my synth setup, including live. Uh-huh. And so one of the things I'm working on, um, and if you post some pictures or video, you'll see this Eurorack setup, which is essentially set up to be quad. Uh-huh. And my hope is to try to do some quad shows in Seattle. Um, where the audience, where me and the audience are all inside the surround sound setup, um, and that you can then hear the whole th- performance in quad. Oh wow! It'll be very challenging, and you know the yeah. problem is that yeah. no mixers operating quad, um, or at least that I can afford. <laughs> um, and so I've just I'm making like a pseudo quad setup with essentially a stereo front and stereo rear with two different mixing boards, uh-huh. but I'm sort of cross patching Eurorack effects between them so I can actually fake simulate bouncing you know delay lines between all four speakers and well, wow huh so Cassim are people going to have the chance to hear that if they go to Rebar? On May 31st? No. <laughs> but you uh, are playing at Rebar yeah, in Seattle yeah, on May 31st. Yeah, best have, venue in Seattle. I like Rebar a, a lot. cultural a lot of, landmark. Yeah, I've got a lot of history. It's squashed in between these like mega high-rises now. I know. It's kinda, I was just working down in that area the other day, and, and I like couldn't find it for a second. Yeah. It was right in front of me. They're like, holding oh, on, right which, is, which is admirable yeah. um, in Seattle, where everything is getting swallowed up by glass and steel. Uh-huh. Yeah, you've heard um, me talk about Monster Planet, dear yeah. listener. That's where uh, a lot of the all the monster planets that I've done yeah. were there. So yeah, and yeah. I was fortunate to do one maybe two years ago. Okay, I think with Tom uh, Butcher, who is also an orchid, who's going to be playing at this same show, right. and who I started gonna... Patchworks with yeah. Cindy Reichel. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, we're gonna we've, we're trying to find a, a time to to nail down with, with Tom. Our schedules aren't lining up, oh, but yeah. we're definitely going to have him on as well. He has a mega studio. Yeah. It's really I, inspirational. Yeah. And overwhelming. Coming from you, that's then that's that must be really impressive because this is one of the most impressive home studios I've seen. He's he's got some pretty <laughs> he's got some pretty interesting unique gear as well. Yeah. Um, he's got a lot of vintage drum machines, which I never I have like one sort of Korg old Korg drum machine, but never really got invested in the whole 808 909 side of things and Okay. Maybe so, someday, I don't know. I, I wanna I wanna talk about some of these amazing synthesizers you got behind us here. Yeah, let's um, do it. But uh give us just like a brief a brief history of of electronic music, like your your journey through electronic music and what what, what did you start playing with at first instrument wise and just yeah. how has that evolved till now? 
Yeah, I got, uh, you know, I grew up in a musical family, so I took piano lessons and cello lessons and pipe organ lessons, oh, which wow. I think is the original <laughs> synthesizer. Personally, <laughs> I've got a buddy who builds pipe organs. That's really cool. Yeah, I, someday I would love to own a pipe organ, yeah. a small one, but <laughs> that would be challenging and expensive. <laughs> um, and then uh, I would uh, took cello lessons, and I would go downstairs to the music store that was downstairs, and they had a Yamaha DX7. And I think my life changed. The DX7. <laughs> the DX7. <laughs> and it had, a, it had a helicopter sound. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just like, um, <laughs> I was just amazed that it could make all these different, weird, bizarre sounds, uh-huh. and some natural to some just so crazy. And I, that was really the moment that I got sort of bit by it. Okay. And uh, I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and there was a synth store there called Pi Keyboards and Audio. And I would just go there every weekend. And there's probably people like who do that at Patchworks. Yeah, right? well, I think you're looking week, at two of them. <laughs> yeah, you just go to Patchworks and you like start to like play synths. And I would do that there. Um, and uh, the synth I got really into was the Insonic EPS samplers, Emacs's um, emulators, and Insonics were pretty new at that time. And uh, I had saved up a bunch of money from mowing lawns in my neighborhood, <laughs> and I was about to basically spend $2,000 on my first synth, and it was a toss-up between the DX7 and the Insonic. And I'm really, really happy I bought the Insonic. Yeah. Not that I don't like DX7s. I think they're super interesting. But samplers really sort of forged a huge path of my musical songwriting journey because I got really into trip-hop and down-tempo and mm-hmm. Portishead and... Um, DJ Shadow and you know all that stuff with samplers yeah Um, and it had a sequencer and you know the DX7 I don't know if I would have written many songs with it and the Insonic was sort of a you know a full studio and and so you know I got and then my first analog synth was uh, Prophet 600 which is awesome right first what the first synth to have MIDI I think oh Mm -hmm. really yep 84 or 3 or something like that anyways and, and you could store patches which was pretty awesome and had that for quite a while. And so, yeah, and so then that sort of began my journey of synthesizers, and and then it was really not until the mid-2000s um, that some of my fel- fellow friends I was in Boston, where I was at, got really bit by the vintage synth bug and sort of sucked me into that whole world. Yeah. And it was just before they had gotten ridiculously expensive, <laughs> um, and there I was able to pick up a Prophet 10, which is one of my favorite synths. It's what Vangelis used to work on Blade Runner and Dual Manual. Uh-huh. It's like two Prophet 5s and one synthesizer with a sequencer. Yeah, it's that's that guy right there, yeah. right? And yeah. very oh, hard to man. move because yeah. it weighs nearly 100 pounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, I, I had a big dope first setup for a while. My friend Pete McGuire had a small one in the mid-2000s, and this was really before... Euro, I don't think, I think Doper was the only Euro rack back Yeah, they then. kind of forged that whole, yeah. like, um, standard, right? I mean, there might have been, like, a few others back then, but he had only Doper modules and sort of, like, showed me the possibility of what you could do mm-hmm. with that. And so I had a really big um, uh, Doper setup for a while, and I wanted it to be in stereo. Like, you know, most everything is in mono, or at least it was for a long time. So I bought two of everything. <laughs> so I it had six oscillators so that I could have three oscillators per side. Uh-huh. And so everything got doubled. All the LFOs, all the ADSRs. I had a quad mixer. And so I was able to actually create a, a six VCO dope for synthesizer. Wow. And it was awesome sounding. It was pretty great. 
um, and then was able to actually get into um, the Mo a Moog modular, which is probably my biggest and sort of main synthesizer. Yeah. So, yeah, tell us the story behind your, your Moog there. That yeah, is... it's an original from 68, 69. Um, and the, um, it was set up, uh, the person I bought it from was really into Keith Emerson, just a huge Keith Emerson fan, uh -huh. who was probably the most well-known user of the Moog Modular. And so he, he over the years, he assembled a, a Moog Modular setup that was identical, including the actual placements of all the modules. So when you look at oh, it wow. and you look at like Keith's <laughs> setup, it's like, oh, okay, right. They have this and you've got the ADSRs here and the quad mixer here and this wow. double sequencer. And, and then Keith's had a fourth cabinet on top that I think had an oscilloscope and I think had a big power supply up there. So it's not identical, but, um, uh, but he set it up to be that way. And so I have the original keyboard, the ribbon controller, and essentially it's a seven, seven oscillator mode modulator. Our book modular. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're listening right now, we're going to have some pictures up if you go. Oh, yeah. And check us out. You can go to podularmodcast.com and find links to everything. But this Moog modular, uh, I'm curious, the small box at the very top. Oh, is yeah. What? That's a sample and hold module, which apparently oh. I don't think they ever made into an actual 5U setup. They released it as a standalone because I think it also worked with, um, I think you could control it also with the memory Moog and a few other Moogs. So rather than put it in 5U, by that point, I think they had abandoned the whole Moog modular. They had moved on to the mini Moog and the memory Moog. And so I think um, it's just a standalone thing that could work with all those things. Mm. Um, and then I also hidden down on the floor down there in the right is actually, to me, the most interesting module, uh, which is a, a Bode frequency shifter. Uh, and so Bode uh, and Moog were really good friends, and uh, they made a few of these frequency shifters as a test, and then later on, they released it as an actual 5U module that would go in. And I believe the Bode frequency module might be the rarest of all the original uh, Moog modular modules. Um, wow. And so to be able to actually have the frequency shifter as a standalone rack unit is actually pretty amazing. Um, and prop and actually probably more rare than the entire Moog modular itself. Wow. That is crazy. It's pretty crazy. And and the other thing uh, I was very fortunate was uh, um, I've gone to MoogFest a few times mm -hmm. and have been able to take a tour of the Moog factory and they know about my setup and stuff like that, which is really cool. And got a chance to actually meet Keith Emerson there uh, before he passed away, I think that was in 2014. I was there and got him to autograph my Moog modular manual, <laughs> nice. al along with Herb Deutsch. And Herb, you know, was also super influential in getting Bob Moog to want to actually make synthesizers. I, you know, I think Herb like worked on maybe the first drum machine ever. Anyways, and so I got a chance to meet him because um, he was there speaking at Moogfest as well. And so I, I clearly got bit by the whole. Moog. I have a Sonic 6, and I've got a Memory Moog, and, and a Voyager, um, which stays in tune, and I can store presets uh, yeah. as MIDI. <laughs> yeah. The conveniences. It's it's funny. I, I, it seems like there's like this this giant full circle that people go go on with with vintage synths, you know, and I feel like there are there are people out there that get bit by the bug, and they can o I only use vintage stuff, and I right, only yeah. use this, and it has to be authentic, and then after a while. <laughs> 
<laughs> because of tuning and everything, and <laughs> right. then reissues. They're like, okay, yeah. well, this may, this sounds just as good, and I don't have to yeah. deal with all this stuff. As so they, the frustrations yeah. mount, <laughs> yeah, they start yeah. to concede a little. Yeah, I, I have an original Arp Odyssey, and honestly, I wish I had the reissue. Yeah, because it's got the little toggle. You can switch between all the filters. And which I can't do. I only have the one filter that it came with, and so it's it's been interesting watching what since get reissued and what since haven't. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm picturing right now a, a handful of different listeners on different parts of that circle, and the ones that are just on the trajectory of just using <laughs> yeah. old vintage stuff, they're cursing us right now. Well, and and I, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to bring up uh, what some people would call heresy, uh, Behringer has yeah. stepped in, and the new uh, Model D, the Mini Moog Club, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I was talking to a tech who said that he thought that it sounded better than the original. Wow. And this is a Behringer product for $300. At the same time, I don't think we've seen any of the sequential circuit stuff get reissued because Dave Smith is busy doing new right. things, and yeah. if he wasn't, we'd see a lot of reissues. Yeah, right. Supposedly, rumor mills going around, now Behringer has a Pro 1 that's going to come ah, out for yeah. 350 bucks. Yeah. But looking at this Profit 10, no one would ever reissue this. Yeah, no, it's... yeah. <laughs> no one, no one will do that. There's I mean, no way you can get, you know, the Profit Five soft synth, um, you know, the sort of soft synths. Some of them did a really pretty admirable job um, at recreating some of these vintage synths. But for me, it the the what I like is that they're noisy. They've got all these rough edges. They don't stay in tune. And the biggest thing for me is how the filters, um, when the filters' resonance are turned up high enough, you start to get very unpredictable. Um, you know, uh, sounds coming out of those, and to me, those the rough edges are what I like. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that, and while these reissues, they do sound great. Like the Arp Odyssey reissue sounds fantastic, but it doesn't have any rough edges. And so those sort of weird happy accidents that you sort of stumble into because of a bad power supply or whatever, um, you don't get any of those. And that I think to me, that's that's the loss. Are the, is a sort of like the happy accident, and mm-hmm. especially how the filter starts to self oscillate, or that you know how that resonance is dealt with, especially on a key by key basis. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the Prophet Ten, when I turn the resonance up high enough, every key causes that resonant filter to like do something unpredictable. Whereas I feel in the reissues of various synths, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Speaking of reissues, but what is it worth it? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, for like you know. Uh, I don't. I mean, you can't even get Profit Tens anymore. But you know, it's probably a six thousand dollars synthesizer or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And to go to like a three hundred dollar reissue of a Profit Five is that worth it? I don't know. <laughs> and I really think the <laughs> only know. reason why these old profits are still available is that Wine Country uh, circuits yeah. offered right. aftermarket parts until about two years ago. I yeah. Believe. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's really neat that I can look at this. It's in beautiful condition, and mm. sure, I'm sure it has some quirks, but. Uh, this machine, it it looks like it might as well be new on the outside. Yeah, it's uh, it's in pretty good shape. Pretty good shape. Yeah. It, uh, it it's also very heavy. Yeah. <laughs> so move, moving my studio around over the years has not been extremely fun. Yeah. My yeah. Profit Six Hundred was heavy enough on its own. Yeah, right. That was my first synth as a teenager. I fell down the stairs a couple times with it. <laughs> right. Uh, I and I I want to ask if anyone's listening. If you've done any destruction of components in your synthesizers, tried to downgrade circuits in any way apart from straight circuit bending, let us know. Mm. Send us some videos, send us some sounds. We want to hear about it. Yeah. If you took that Arp Odyssey reissue and you beat it up somehow, let us know what you did. Yeah, I think the whole circuit bending thing is really fascinating. 
especially just again like you start to yield really unexpected results from what would normally be a you know sort of a straight straight ahead synthesizer sound so you got bit by a dx7 now isn't the isn't that new volca fm basically a dx7 reissue like like I've, how do you feel about the the Korg and the Roland reissue stuff? That's like like battery powered, so you know, like under three hundred dollars synthesizers. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of the Roland, you know, uh-huh. the tiny little boutique lines, and the particularly. So I owned a VP three thirty vocoder for many years. In fact, um, when I was in Freeze Pop, we owned two of them, and actually, that is one of the synths that I really regret selling. Yeah, the string synthesizer on it was beautiful sounding, and the vocoder was one of the dreamiest vocoders I've ever heard. So when they reissued it, I was psyched because you can't, you can barely find those anymore either. Um, and it's awesome sounding. Yeah. Again, you know, it misses a little bit of the rough edges, but if you just want a dreamy, beautiful string synthesizer or vocoder for you know, a few hundred dollars, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's portable. And so, you know, a huge thing is the ability to go play shows and not have to cart around like crazy expensive heavy gear yeah. is great. Yeah, I yeah. use I use the Volca Beats and I even can, you know, interface it with my modular setup and it's it's totally awesome. Yeah. And it fits yep. I can put it in the pocket of a couple of my jackets. So and God bless Keith Emerson, but not all of us have roadies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would love to play a show where somebody else set up my gear and tore it down, but that will never happen. So yeah, I would like to talk about. I want to. I want to talk about your live, your live philosophy. Yeah. And your live, your live setup, and and just looking at all this stuff and listening to all the the various types of music. I'm imagining that your live setup greatly depends on. What what project you're playing, or what what album even from each project you're playing? Yeah, for a long time I didn't play <clears throat> shows. Um, I only played with Freeze Pop, and we had our own live setup, and that worked really well. It was mostly an iPod <laughs> 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 and some live synth parts, but it, right. we tried to pair that to be pretty simple. And so when I started doing Simeon Project live, it took me a year of looking at different gear to figure out how I wanted to do it. Um, and for me, I had sort of two big things, um, sort of turnoffs when I see electronic bands live. One is the cardboard table with the laptop and the push controller and then cables everywhere. <laughs> I just, I, it aesthetically doesn't look good. I, and the idea of having a laptop between me and the audience just uh, seemed horrible. I did not want that. I really, you know, it's hard enough for electronic musicians to have a connection with the people in front of them because of the weird gear and and the stress of like running all this equipment. I just did not want that. And so I knew I didn't want to have a laptop in front of me. There could be a laptop on stage, but it could not be this thing that I had to actively interact with. Um, and so I looked at MPCs and, and I ended up with, with a, almost an entire Electron live setup. So okay. I have an Octatrack, mm-hmm. and I have an original machine drum, and then I have uh, an analog rhythm, and I sort of go back and forth between the two drum machines. But it's the Octatrack that basically lets me have some control over tracks, so I can basically live remix my music and sort of live sequence it to a certain extent. But it's predictable enough that it's not going to like break down at any moment. Like that box is really rock solid in mm-hmm. terms of like not crashing and all of that stuff. Um, and then the drum machine is sort of the unpredictable aspect of it. I programmed a couple hundred different drum patterns 
And because there's so many, I can't remember any of them. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what A1 versus D11 is. Mm-hmm. So while I'm playing, I randomly just bring up a drum pattern. And if it sounds good, I let it run for a while. If it doesn't sound good, one bar later, I can change it. <laughs> so that's my sort the of one like... one bar later trick. <laughs> yeah, it's my like element of uncertainty because I wanted there to be some live, you know, sort mm-hmm. of like a mixture of live and controlled aspects. And yeah. So, and usually what I do then for my projects is I just port my songs over into the Octatrack, and that's how I drive most of my live shows. And okay. sometimes I'll bring a guitar, and sometimes I sing, and and now that I'm con- con- contemplating doing some like quad stuff, I'll have to rethink the whole situation. Yeah, that's I want to I I want to keep in touch on that, and and yeah. after you after you've pulled that off, maybe maybe do another episode with you just to talk about that that sounds like that would be yeah that would super be super crazy yeah well let's we'll see if i can off. pull it off yeah the problem is i need to find a location where i can do it so yeah. you know in seattle i'm looking at places like the fremont abbey art center where you've got really awesome space good acoustics mm-hmm. and but you know to run in quad i will basically have to like hire a sound company to show up with four speakers yeah and help me how much it. space do you think you need not a, not very much because a lot of these alternative alternative performing spaces they actually don't want it to be loud mm-hmm. and the music i want to do is more ambient yeah. i don't want it's not like club music so i don't need like subs everywhere and yeah all that stuff so really it needs to be loud enough so that everybody inside it can hear what's going on but i also want the acoustics of the space to play a role because i'm using some you know acoustic instruments yeah. and that would sound amazing have you been to uh, the mokito art space in yeah that Georgetown? place is awesome uh, yeah that yeah. um i know molly is a huge friend of the just the electronic community here. Yeah, and so, they put on some great events there. Yeah, that would she, be a, she could be a good resource yeah. for that. I'd like to throw out, too, I was lucky enough to see Morton Sabotnik do a quadraphonic performance at the Good Shepherd Center. Nice. And yep. it was the perfect size because I think everybody in the audience felt like they were in the middle yeah. of everything. Right. And didn't feel like there were things too far in the distance. Um, yep. Yeah. Susan, uh, Suzanne Siani also does quad bukla performances as oh, well. Man, and I would love to see. It's that. really cool seeing um, you know a few people out there try it. It's just it's just painful to have to deal with the setup and find a location. Oh yeah. And, well, and even even Morton synth legend, rest in peace, Morton. Uh, yep. Use pre-recorded bits. Yes. And yeah. played a Lake of Sulphur and Four Butterflies. Well, so like off that, of tape. that kind of right. and, and going back to what we were just talking about with 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 Casson's live set up you know you you have samples that you build off of and i think i don't know it's a it's a struggle i almost want to do a whole episode just on on me trying to sort out how i feel about a live electronic <laughs> performance i know it but could be its own like it could be its own podcast it really could yeah mm-hmm. and you know but yeah. the more and more I, i'm talking to more and more people about it and i think with just how much great technology there is now and 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 because we've gone through the everybody used the laptop and and then everybody hated the laptop and i think now we're coming <laughs> right. around to where it's like use all of this stuff together yeah. the best way you can i mean chad allen from switched on austin shout out i just talked to him oh, yeah. and then he kind of he kind of snapped me out of a fog he was just like as long as it's genuine yeah. and you're not totally just like pre- pressing play if right. you're connecting people like 
That's really right. It's just it's another part. tool in your tool set. I mean, the reason mm-hmm. I have a laptop on stage is that's where I'm driving all my visuals. Oh yeah, predominantly. See, I've thought about that too. And there's a couple really cool visual uh, modules coming out. Yeah, like the video. That whole that? world. Oh is my god, awesome! <laughs> and I have stayed away from that world because it's expensive yeah. and complicated. So I went but down cool stuff when I was in Austin and went to Switched On. They had they had the video. Um, module set up and they're actually going through those Commodore 64 monitors with mm. the big gray square push oh, button and I yeah. used those to play PlayStation in high school Ooh. so it was just like <laughs> super blast from the past yeah super yep. cool yeah <clears throat> yeah I mean the laptops is just it's another tool in fact mm-hmm. my what my live synthesizer sounds are reason right yeah just yeah. because and I play reason using a guitar but then in the background it's running all my visuals but mm-hmm. it, but because I don't have to actually touch the computer really it can just sort of sit off to the side and right. do its thing so yeah yeah if only someone would make say a USB box that put high resolution control voltages out mm. why gosh that would be just a really great thing wouldn't it tim <laughs> what why are you Wait, yelling at me when i'm sensing some animosity here <laughs> why are you yelling at me <laughs> Why, why doesn't that exist? Uh, oh. <laughs> there's always the equipment out there. You're just like, I can't believe somebody hasn't like made this like mm-hmm. one u- little utility box. Yeah, that... and there's probably a teenager with an Arduino yeah. that just hasn't left in a couple of years. It's like, oh, this is cool. No yeah. one would be interested in this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm looking at your setup now, and I, I want to bring up your Eurorack setup. Looks like you yeah. have two rows of 84 HP yep. or 72 HP. Um, 84. And... And this is all effects. All there's effects. A clouds. There's two even tied units. Yep, the Euro DDL. Is that a morphogene we see as well? Uh, the make noise. Uh, uh, no, it, it's the um. Oh, it's the herb verb. Herb verb. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And clouds. Okay. Nice. Oh. And then I just got the Strymon Magneto, uh, which I literally went in there yesterday, so I barely know how to use it. And then there's a couple filters, just you know, 24 uh, dB filters and a few controllers. I've got the um, a joystick controller and a theremin controller. And How some do you mults. like that theremin controller? I've been thinking about picking it up. It's interesting. It's a little, it's a little hard yeah. to use. Um, you know, it's embedded in a bunch of cables wrapped around it. And right, yeah. I, it's, it's not super great, but, but I'm trying... I think what I'm going to use that for is... Um, like resonant filter control. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sort of put my filters at the very end stage, leave them all basically dry, but then I can suddenly push my hand towards it and actually cause a filter sweep. Right, yeah. I was was thinking about getting it and and then very quickly thought I didn't want to use it for the the volt per octave. I I wanted to use it to kind of more control modulators or filters. I want to ask, Hassam, is this used more to give treatments to acoustic instruments like the Kodo that we're looking at or do you find this to be an integral part of everything you do, this Eurorack-centric effects yeah. and uh, well, manipulation? Right, right. I mean, so my original idea was that it would essentially just be on an aux end in my computer setup, right? So it would just be hardware effects that I could run digital tracks out to, oh. just like my Spring Reverb or my Eventide Space or other effects processors. Um, then when I got sort of bitten by the idea about potentially doing a, qu- a live quad Japanese Kodo based, um, th- a, a performance, I sort of ripped the entire Eurorack out of my studio and moved it over by the instrument. So unfortunately <laughs> now I can't use it as an effects processor because the patches are like, you know, custom set up for Kodo playing. So I'm a little bit bummed. I wish I basically had two. 
but that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm a little, it, this is the problem about, right, about using effects for different things is that moving them around, I don't even know what to do. Like, I feel like if I moved it back into my studio setup, I would mess up all of the patches, you know, and, and I and getting them back to the way they are right now where it, there's no presets yeah. would be impossible. I'm struggling with something similar, not quite as bad, but with guitar, guitar effects pedals, yeah. I like to play guitar and bass with my Eurorack setup. Um, but I also want to run some of my modules through some of my pedals. So right. trying to figure out like, You're like how much am I going to disrupt this setup to ex- do something exactly. else? Exactly. Yeah. It's it's yeah. you know, and that's that's part of the fun, but it's also kind of like part of me wants to just land on something that is that you like. But yeah. So know. I'm invest, <laughs> and right now I'm investing in leaving it for the live setup. And if I can push that forward, it'll probably permanently stay that. Mm. Um, but if if I if it's too much, if I don't really. I'm not able to push that forward too much. It'll probably just re-enter my my studio setup. You must value these Eurorack effects, like and just the the versatility, um, and and just the 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 multiple ways you can patch them to each other, like to have just the Eurorack stuff as just a, an effects processor that you might just leave patched the same way for an extended period of time. That's right. that's that's commitment. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the advantage, I mean, I've got tons of digital effects that can do delays uh-huh. and basic things. That's super easy. It's the CV control. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, I you know, in in Ableton or Reason or whatever, you can start to automate all, the, you know, and sort of fake CV. Mm-hmm. But again, the automation is really done by hand. And so it's controlled. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you attach it to ADSRs and chaos generators and uh, you know LFOs, you can create very unpredictable moments inside that's your what effects. I, okay, and that's, that's what, what I love about it. That's what I was going to ask. If it was the that unpredictable nature of CV, yeah, which that that seems to be the heart of most everybody we, I've talked to about just what yeah. it is. Even if they don't use those words, like you, I feel like you could boil down. Why do you yeah. use your Eurorack? It's the down happy to, accident, right? The... CV lets you get the that uncontrolled, unpredictable moment where mm-hmm. you hear something that you've never heard before. And it's it's funny. It's it's one of those things where uh, the thing that that really lures you in is also maybe something that makes you slam your head against the wall on another well, day. Well, right? Yeah, it adds its own <laughs> issues. You, for sure, it's, it can be very challenging. Yep. Yep. But and and it took me a while to figure out exactly what modules I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I tried the what the Morphogene, and I tried a bunch of different effects. Um, and the the Eventide Euro DDLs are just fantastic because they I think they have more CV control than any other delay I had ever seen. Okay, but they still live in the world of just a good simple delay. Yeah, I didn't even know Eventide made. Eurorack. Yeah, and this is, I think this of, is really their first sort of foray into okay, the space. Okay, because they're they're like their space that oh, reverb. Yeah. That's just one of the best effects pedals ever. Yeah, that's like a go-to reverb for yeah. sure. Um, and clouds is awesome, um, and that's really the one that I get the most unpredictability from. Um, that's I've been wanting to get one, but I've heard some people say that if you hear it, you know it's a clouds. Yeah, is that well, true? I don't. Oh uh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, it's not a one. It's not that it's a one-trick pony. Uh-huh. It's just that it's still pretty limited, and um, I think the goal there is to just find the right source to run through it. Uh huh. I tried running drums through it, which actually yielded some really interesting rhythmic unpredictability 
But what I found is that running an acoustic instrument through it was the thing that sort of makes it sound different than you know, running just another, your rest of your sort of Euro synth mm-hmm. through it. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And then the, and the herb verb is crazy, bizarre, weird. Yeah. Make um, noise stuff is so yeah. cool. Being able to control just, you know, like size and decay time in real time is, you know, normally you can't do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then the, uh, and then the Magneto uh, for me was a toss up between the Strymon timeline and the Magneto um, but ultimately, it was the all the CV control over the Magneto that made me choose it over the timeline. So that's I'm, a delay unit, right? That's a delay unit. Yeah. Um, and so, and delay looper because with the Kodo, I want a looper. Uh huh. You can see there's sort of a cheap boss looper uh-huh. on the ground yeah. that I'm now going to get rid of because it can't. It pales in comparison to what I'd be able to do with the Magneto. Now, so with the looping with the Magneto, how do you control the start and stop? Actually, I don't know. Okay. Given that I just got it, I'm actually a little uncertain how I'm going to deal with the looping qualities. Uh-huh. I mean, I can manually just, you know, uh, tap in my, you know, my spl- my record in and out moments. Right. Um, I might try to see if I can put it on a foot pedal. Because if I'm playing an instrument, I can use my feet to control things, but my hands are busy. Yeah. I was going to say maybe something... Like an expression pedal, yeah, you know, but n- not, not, not maybe not on a potentiometer type thing, but maybe just more of like a, a, yeah. a switch type thing. Yeah. Although this looks like something you could maybe start out playing one-handed. Yes. Or well, and like I th- my goal is to basically sort of start an ambient bed, which means I'm basically just plucking the strings, but I'm not playing anything complicated. My guess is my left hand would be free. That's why I have it sort of the left side. Okay. Of, uh-huh. of me. But uh-huh. the other thing too is because I'm looking. Um, the music I'm performing is not BPM synced. Okay. So I have the luxury of letting things sort of free run. Uh huh. And so I've been thinking that perhaps maybe all I would do is just sort of set set the pitch speed knob to an area where I get maybe you know about a ten second or fifteen second loop, and whatever it gets, that's what I get. Yeah, and with these ambient noises, especially if if you're if you're like just keeping it going after the loop is made, you're you're probably not going to notice any hard cut at the end of your loop. No, or anything. right? So, yeah, yeah, and and yeah. well, and you're hearing four different effects all layered together. Right, <laughs> so right. In fact, we'll do a little recording here in a second of yeah. this setup, so you can sort of hear it all going. Uh huh. Yeah. Let me let me ask. Uh, do we know the max delay time of the Magneto? <laughs> I th- I was just for the nerds this. out there. I think it's like two. I think it's two minutes. Oh, man. I think that if you set the pitch speed knob to its, like, min-max, it goes from, like, 15-ish seconds to, like, two minutes. I'm now <laughs> literally looking at their manual. It's, like, the nerdiest thing you could do on a podcast. <laughs> Bedtime like reading. Read a synth manual. Uh, yeah. I did go to bed with my Waldorf NW1 manual last night. <laughs> nice. I don't think I'm going to find it in here. It's, it's pretty long delay time, though. Anyways, all right, this is super boring. Well, no, <laughs> well, uh, let's let's listen to some sounds. Yeah, and, I uh, definitely yeah. want to check check some of this out. Um, all right, how do you want to do this? Right now, you're listening to an ambient techno Eurorack patch by Verzerin. You can find their music online at www.verzer.ren. We'd like to read some events off to you. We want to keep the events going because we want you to be involved with your modular synth community we're in seattle and we're really happy that modular on the spot is so active here so what's coming up next tim 
May 12th, we have a modular on the spot at Seward Park. July 9th, we have Gasworks Park, and I will actually be performing at that one. Oh. Yeah. Uh, July 14th, we have Cal Anderson Park. August 11th, Volunteer Park. And September 8th, Gasworks Park again. No. Oh, no. You st um, <laughs> we're, we're human. We make mistakes. Modular on the spot is all over. They're in L.A., where it originated. They are in Portland. There's a chapter in Austin, Texas. There's more. We probably don't know them all. However, we want to support all modular communities, and we want you to submit your events to info at modularmodcast.com. Let us know what's coming up. We'll read it on the air. Also, you want to get your music on the show? Send it on over. We'll probably like it. Yeah, and that goes for everybody beyond just the modular on the spot community. If you're doing anything modular, meetups, talks, classes, shows, whatever, give us a shout. All right, now we're going to dive into what would have been the patch challenge portion of the show, but um, like we said, Kassen just has modular effects, and he has them set up, so um, it's really, really interesting. He plays a Japanese koto through all these different crazy modular effects, and it sounds amazing. So yeah, enjoy.
Oh, that was talking about bedazzled jeans, yeah. Uh, creating prisms of light shining across the sea. Oh, you're talking about your loft and if I moved, Yakima. If I moved to downtown Yakima, yeah. yeah. You, so, did you notice you have bedazzled jewels on your diva bitch hat? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever had a hat that really um, fits my inner soul. But thanks for listening. You can find us online at Instagram.com slash Podular underscore Modcast. You can go to Patreon.com slash Podular Modcast. You can go to our site at PodularModcast.com. And you can find us on Facebook, or you can email us at info at PodularModcast. We're really happy to have you with us. Let's have a little more contact. You and me, you and him, all three of us, let's all talk.